Thank you, Garrett. I think we're all going to have a lot to learn over the next few weeks as we hear uh, the children learning about the Lord's Prayer. Because if you think about the Lord's Prayer, you just prayed it and you probably didn't think about it much. I was looking down at my sermon notes while going and saying the Lord's Prayer. My mind is, our Father who art in heaven, oh, my mom's here today. She's got to leave. Hallowed be thy name. We've got her, my in-laws coming in this afternoon. Uh, And you just kind of, your mind just sort of goes into different directions. But wouldn't it be amazing if you just paused? And in the privacy of your home one day, just knelt and said, Our Father. Our. That means he's mine and yours. Together, we're together. Father, thank you for the fact that you're my Father. My Father. What are the implications of Father? What does it mean that he's our Father? Who art in heaven. Oh, this isn't just any Father. This is my Heavenly Father. Hallowed. Hallowed. There's a word you use often, right? You know, I remember as a kid, we had, I still remember this little skit of, pup, of puppets that said, Holler it be your name. He hollered his name and thought, Oh, you just yell it loudly, but it's hallowed. It's to be taken with great care. And it's hallowed. So slow down next time you pray the Lord's Prayer. Contemplate what it is that we're praying. You know, there's lots of different kinds of prayers, right? There's the gossip prayer. Lord, we just pray for the Smith family. They've got some private things going on. They're bankrupt and their children are crazy and they're about to get a divorce. Now, no one knows that, Lord, but we just want to lift that to you. There's the informational prayer. Father, we pray for Bob, who's wearing a red sweater this morning and a black tie and of this. Uh, you know, and then there's the, you know, the King James Thou Lord who artst in heaven, shalt thou not smitest thy enemies before. When prayer is just us speaking to God. And when Garrett said there are sometimes times when you don't know words, the scripture says the spirit testifies with your spirit with groanings too deep for words. Is it possible that the human language is not able to fully grasp the emotion the pain, the joy, whatever it is in your hearts. And sometimes all you can do before the Lord is sigh. (sighs) Mm. Do you think God knows what you just prayed there? So in light of all of that, let's go before this great God whose name is Hallowed, who is our Father, who is seated in heaven above all rule and authority and loves to give gifts to answer prayer to his children. Let's go to him and pray now. Father, we come and we acknowledge your greatness in front of us. We acknowledge that you are above all things. We acknowledge that you are our Father, my Father, the person sitting to my left, to my right's Father. That therefore, God, in some mysterious way, even more profoundly than blood relationships is the blood relationship of Christ to my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are together as family. And when one hurts, we all hurt. When one celebrates, we all celebrate. When one mourns, we all mourn. Father, we pray together as one this morning that your name would be praised, that it would be lifted up and hallowed in our own lives. Would we never take it lightly? Would we, would we never take lightly the fact that we bear the name of our Savior? 
that we go out into this world as ambassadors, as reflectors of the light of the kingdom itself, of our king, that we go as agents of peace, that we go and we bring life to places where there's death. We bring light to places where there is darkness, hope to the hopeless, comfort to those who mourn. Father, we pray that we would be used powerfully by you together to go out into the world and that this season, especially this season, wouldn't be about trees and gifts and all the stress that comes with family and travel and food preparations and did we get the right thing or not get the right thing, but Father, would we see Christ this week? Would we see him high and lifted up? And would we be forever impacted and changed because of it? Father, there are many needs in our world. There are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who can't celebrate the birth of their king or they fear imprisonment or even death. Father, would they be able to celebrate deep down what it means? Father, there are our brothers and sisters ministering around the world who need our help and support as they share the good news of the gospel. There are some who have ministered for so long with no sign of fruit, but yet are faithful. And we pray that they would bear much fruit, that they would have the joy of seeing many come to faith. Father, we pray in our own country that we would celebrate Christ, that we would would celebrate him above all else. Father, before us today, would you walk? And would we walk with you? Go before us and be our victor, our champion. And would we experience your salvation and your peace and your hope? And eventually, hopefully soon, your very presence as you come back and make all things new. Father, we praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. And so we come this morning and we are going to finish our series looking at a cosmic Christmas. Uh, looking at a Christmas celebration uh, that is in heaven itself and that the coming of Christ uh, in some ways elicited peace and it's sentimental and it's value to us and it's wonderful, but in other ways it elicited great horrific response from the powers of evil around the world that realized because of this, because of Christ's entrance into the world, we've lost. And there's a battle going on. I love that almost every Sunday morning, at least every Sunday, but most of the time every Sunday morning, I get an email from a friend of mine who's ministering in Australia. And they're ministering in a church called Frio, Church Frio, Freedom. And they're ministering to street people and surfers and prostitutes and and just the dregs, the the cast-outs of society. And they've been faithfully ministering for years. And this morning's uh, update said this, pray for us, we had a wild one today, because, you know, they've already... Had Sunday over there. Uh, it had a wild one today. During our prayer time, a woman stood and called down every god and every demon and every piece of occult that she possibly could. And someone else stood and yelled at her. And the last week's was there was a fight between two guys who were drunk in church. And they were there and one of the deacons had to come and break it up. Uh, and so and he said, and it's awesome. I thought, you know, we don't have many, if any, issues in our church. (laughs) We just prayed a prayer and none of you stood up and called down the name of everything evil. We haven't had brawls in the church. We haven't had people outside fighting. But you see, church elicits a response. 
That woman there realized something. There was a power struggle happening. A friend of mine started a coffee house in Memphis, uh, and he would have he closed it down on Sunday nights and would allow Christians to come and, and just to celebrate, to have a time of praise and worship. It wasn't a particular church. It was just time together for folks. And there was a group of young women who were there one afternoon. He said, ladies, we're going to be shutting down. Now, you're welcome to stay, but we're going to be shutting down, and we're going to be having a Christian worship service. He said, what is it that you gather for every Sunday afternoon? And they said, oh, we're a coven of witches. He said, well, you're welcome to stay. Why don't you? And they did. And he said it was the most incredible thing. He said the tension in the room could just be cut with a knife because there was a battle at hand. Christ, the victor, the king, and all those opposed to him. And Christmas season is one that highlights that in our lives. We look at it as just this sweet little baby in a manger and some shepherds and some magi and sweet little Mary and Joseph and some things like that and, oh, the cooing of this and the cooing of that. But that's not what was taking place historically. That is not what was taking place cosmically. It was the beginning, in some sense, of a colossal battle. And we've looked at that, and we've looked at the players, that there was Christ who was born, there was the bride, the the woman who is the church, or Israel, through which Christ came into the world, and it said the red dragon, who was Satan himself, waged war upon the woman, trying in some sense to defeat uh, her so that Christ wouldn't come, and then he realized that he couldn't, and so Christ was born, and that he thought that he could battle Christ and win, and he realized that he couldn't. To do that, and then all of a sudden he thought, oh, I did win. Christ was killed on the cross, and he was dead and buried. He thought, I've got him, but then the scriptures here in Revelation say that he was swept up by God into heaven, into a safe place, that he rose from the dead, seated above all rule and authority. And it says that the dragon and all of his minions, it says there's the, 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 the prophet and the whore and the others who were there with him, they were all cast out of heaven, that they no longer had a place there in heaven, that they were cast down. And so if you think about it now, Satan doesn't, you know, sometimes we depict Satan there in heaven standing accusing you, right? That's not true. He's not there. He is cast out and cast down. And so he's defeated and it says now what's he going to do? He's going to take, make war on all those who follow Christ. He's going to make war. He says, I figured this way. Think about it in your own home. Parents especially. If someone attacks one of your children, doesn't it feel like a personal attack? Don't you take it personally? When your child is wounded, aren't you wounded? When your child is hurt, aren't you hurt? Satan knew that. And so he said, if I can attack God's people, his children, I'm in essence attacking him. Uh, I'm waging war on him even though I can't defeat him. Maybe I can take down a few of his kids in the process. And so you have this whole thing going on. And that's what we've been looking at. And today we're going to finish up with this idea uh, of the final victory. I alluded to it a little bit last week, but obviously there were events that took us in a little bit different direction. I'm going to focus on a verse that doesn't come from Revelation chapter 12. It comes from Revelation chapter 17. And it's verse 14. And I believe, at least in my opinion, this is the key verse of all of the book of Revelation. And at some sense the key verse of all of Scripture. And this is what it says, For they will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. 
Isn't that about it? Doesn't that sum up all of what Scripture is about? And they will make war on the Lamb. But the Lamb, He will overcome them. And those who are with Him, faithful and chosen, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. He'll make war on the Lamb. The Lamb's going to overcome. Then He says, there's others who are with Him that get to benefit from it. So what we're going to do today is look a little bit at the war, look a little bit at the battle, and then talk about ultimately our response to the victory that we have in Christ. Because sometimes we don't know how to respond. You find yourself in social situations. How do you respond? How do you even respond to a compliment? Someone says, wow, you did a great job. And I watch people just stutter and stammer around. People come and compliment me on something and I feel the internal. Oh, well, uh, thank you and this. Or someone comes into your home and says, what a beautiful, lovely home that you have. And you don't know how to respond. Our idea of how do we respond is difficult. And it's the same way in church. I watch you guys or I listen. Sometimes there's a, there's a response that you well up and you want to clap. And go, that's awesome. Way to go, God. And you know what you do? Ooh, can I? <laughs> a song comes on like, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And you go, is it okay to clap? And you're looking around and you're seeing a few of us maybe. I, I'm only on the front row, so I'm just watching a few of us up front trying to clap and do. And you're going, is that okay? Some of you hear something in a sermon or you hear something in the worship service and you want to say Amen. But you don't know if that's a proper response. And so you give what's a good Presbyterian response. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I've, I've just learned over the years, if I can get like a grunt, sort of a guttural sound, maybe that's the best we got. Is it a, Jesus won. Hmm. Other churches would go, amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. We don't know how to respond. So how do we respond to the fact that we get to battle with our king and win the victory with him and we get all the spoils of war. How do we respond? So let's look at a few things. First thing is this. We are desperately in need of a victor. First thing, we'll start with the bad news. We're desperately in need of a victor. We're desperately in need of a champion because the reality is this. We can't win it on our own. We cannot beat the enemy on our own. Though he is defeated, though he is cast down, he is still more powerful than you are in your natural condition. And he is not one to be reckoned with. He he is not one to be trifled with. That it says that he is powerful and that he is above you in that power. So how is it that we battle him? Well, we have to have one who's greater than him living in us. Giving us that victory. Giving us that power to be more than conquerors in that way. For you see, we desperately need a victor. Because the effects of Satan in the world, the effects of evil in the world, are both universal and they're personal. They're universal in, in this way. In Romans 8, 20 through 22, it says that all of creation groans under the effects of the fall. All of creation groans under the effects of the fall. You see, when evil entered the world, when Adam and Eve sinned and evil entered the world and death entered the world through evil, it says that now all of creation had been fully integrated. Everything worked harmoniously together. But now, because of sin entering the world, there was disintegration. Things were disintegrating. That the tapestry was pulling apart. That we were becoming frayed. That we were becoming disjointed. That all of creation was that way. I've said it before, but I'm still fascinated. We look out and think about it. If you look out the windows, what would those trees look like without the effect of sin on them? 
I don't know. But something about them is groaning under the condition of sin in the world. It's universal. All of creation groans under it. But the effect of Satan's power and the effect of evil in the world is also personal. For you feel it personally. For it says that to Adam and Eve, because sin entered the world, so did death. And guess what each of us will eventually face? Unless Christ returns before then, guess what? Death. Death is the most powerful motivator for people. Will and I were reading a book together that talked about philosophers. General philosophy, secular philosophy, is still trying to answer the question, how do you deal with death? How do you deal with mortality? Guess what Christianity is also answering? How do you deal with death? They're two separate ways of dealing with the same thing. For guess what? Everybody in the world knows one thing. I'm going to die. And you are too. So cheer up. The question then becomes, what do you do about it? How do you face an enemy that everybody will face and has to face? It's universal and it's personal in each of us. And in one sense, we are experiencing this catastrophe. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his book called Reverse Thunder, speaks about the catastrophe that comes, and, and it's everywhere. And, and there's times when you, it, you see it. You see it very vividly. But then there's this problem that happens, and he writes it this way. The catastrophe is beyond calculation. Still, there is so much beauty in the wreckage, such deep goodness So much moral zest, such blessing, so much active intelligence that it is possible to live for stretches of time, sometimes quite long stretches, honestly unaware of the extent of the disaster. But then either by a slow accumulation of evidence carefully observed or by a sudden crisis-evoked recognition last Friday, it is inescapably before us and we are inescapably in it. We are separated from our origins, separated from our gods, separated from parents and cousins and siblings, from bears and hawks and coyotes. We are, as Walker Percy bluntly put it, lost in the cosmos. We don't know where we are. We don't know who we are. There's times when things are just good, and you forget the fact that you're in the middle of a battle. But then something happens. Reports come back with cancer. Children, adults are killed. A tsunami wipes out. A loved one is gone. Tuesday, there's going to be an empty chair at your table this year. All of a sudden, it comes back and you realize, oh no, I'm in the middle of this catastrophe. I'm in the middle of this battle. I'm in the middle of it and that there still is evil in the world. There still is the fall. How am I going to deal with with it that's where we find ourselves so the question then becomes how do you deal with it well for many they deal with it this way I love this statement it is what it is well of course it is but what is it what's more than that you know life is just this just suck it up until you die just do the best you can just accumulate enough stuff just try to get as much joy as you can eat drink and die eat drink and be merry for what Tomorrow you die. What's it all about? You see, 
there is this battle, there's this victory, and we realize it, and all of a sudden we realize that we can't win it on our own. We realize very much the Old Testament story of David and Goliath, and we teach our children to be like David. And, and that's true in some sense, but I don't believe that's the most important part. I think what we should teach our children and teach our own hearts is this. You know who we relate to more than we relate to David in the story of David and Goliath? We relate to the Israelite armies. We're hiding out in the caves. We're hiding out uh, behind the rocks. We're standing there looking at this huge giant that's out there in front of us. We're staring at death. We're staring at the chaos. We're staring at the catastrophe. And we're going, I can't beat him. I can't beat him. And you hide and you cower and your faith is rocked. And you sit back there and you wonder, we need a champion. I need someone to step out on the field of battle. I need someone who can open up their flag. And ride out onto that field of battle and kill the enemy because he is huge. And he's taunting me. And he's making fun of me. And he seems like he can't be beaten. Don't you think that's what Israel was thinking? And we look around for our own kings and they're hiding back in the back. We're looking around to our governments to solve the problems. We're looking around to other institutions to solve the problems. That somehow if we educate them better or pay for it more or do this better or do that, then the giant's going to die. But instead, who we need to relate to in there is to say, God, would you send Christ to be our David? Would he ride out onto the field of battle? And would he slay our enemies? And would he take on our Goliaths? Because we can't do it on our own. And then guess what? The best part of that story, for some of you, you haven't read it in a long, long time. The best part of that story to me is, yes, David wins the battle. Goliath is defeated. Then guess what happens? All the Israelites get really bold. And they come out from their caves and they come out from behind their, their rocks and they ride out and they get to enjoy the splendor and the victory that they didn't win. Doesn't that sound a little bit like us? That we look out and we go, that enemy is too big. That debt is too much. Death is laughing at me. And what we need to see isn't necessarily that we are Davids, even though there's a sense that we, we can be like Davids, we can overcome. What we need to see is we have a David, a greater David, who went out onto the field and killed death and killed the enemy and kicked him out of heaven and says now to all of us, come out from your hiding. Live in the victory that I've given to you. Quit walking around like you're defeated. The church today, by and large, folks, we walk around like we're defeated. We walk around like we haven't got a victory in anything. Hey, how are things? Well, they're all right. I, I swear I'm going to write a book one day of, about the theology of, of um, Winnie the Pooh. Because most of the church relates with one character more than any other character. You know who that is? Eeyore. You knew it, didn't you? I was hoping that you'd go, we're Tiggers. Everything's good. Woo! But you relate to Eeyore. So how are things? Well, you know. I guess I get to go to heaven one day, but this world sure stinks. Wow, that's a great new house you have. Well, the wind might blow. It's in a floodplain. You just never know. Couldn't get a very good mortgage rate. Wow, your marriage seems to be doing great. Well, there's another shoe that's going to drop. I made a young couple one time write and put literally in their house in huge letters, there is no other shoe. They live their whole life thinking it's too good to be true. Sometimes, some way, that other shoe's got to drop. 
Folks, we have a victor. And it's Christ who came. You see, Christ wins the victory for us. His name even means victory, doesn't it? Jesus, Yeshua, actually comes from the word Joshua. His name, in the, he was just Joshua. Well, it'd be like us being called Bill or Mark or Steve or Susan or whatever. They're common names. But you know what Joshua means? The Lord saves. Even by his name, it says that Christ is our victor. That he is the one who saves us from our sins. Yahweh, God, saves us. He delivers us from our enemies. He fights the battles. Why do you think the angel was so specific with Joseph? He didn't say, hey, you're going to have a son, and you get to name him whatever you want to name him. What did he say? You will have a son. And you will name him Joshua, Jesus. Why? For he will save the world from their sins. Jesus is our victor. He's our David. He is our salvation. That he delivers us from the bondage of sin and death. That he overcame the last enemy. That's why Paul could stand up and preach such a great sermon. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where is your power? For it is gone. I I laugh at you, death. You taunt and and you growl and and you do all of this. It reminds me of my dumb dog that I own, Lizzie. Lizzie is the most afraid dog you will ever be around. We rescued her. Someone was horrible to her before. And she's terrified of cockroaches. You send her outside and a squirrel, she is tough inside the house. There's a squirrel. I'm going to get the squirrel. You let her outside. She's like, I'm good. I'm fine. And if you're a stranger and you walk into our home, it was great for about a year because Lizzie had no voice. She didn't ever bark. Now, all of a sudden, down here in Hilton Head, she's got a voice. And she, if you walk into our house and she doesn't know you, or even if my sons or I walk in and you have a hat on or a jacket that she doesn't recognize, guess what you have to do to her? Boom. She's gone. I mean, she is gone. She is out. She is freaked out. She barks really loud, but there is absolutely nothing to her bark. And I just kind of, it annoys me, but I laugh at her as well. I'm just going, you're a silly dog. You have an enemy who's just like that dog that barks really loud. And you know what you need to say to that enemy? It's not boo. Yeshua. Jesus beat you. And I'm with him. So guess what? I beat you too. Leave me alone. Do you realize that's what our victor has done for us? He's given you that kind of power. He's given you that kind of salvation over sin and death. I sat in a hospital with a friend's mother. And she was 93 years old and she was dying. And she was holding my hand and she was looking at me. She was going, Bill, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to die. And I said, you love Jesus, don't you? She goes, yeah, I do. I've loved him for so long. I said, that means when you close your eyes here, guess what? He's there for you because he overcame the grave. You have nothing to fear. And she just smiled. And a few days later, she wasn't afraid anymore. She went to be with her Savior who overcame death, who overcame her fears, who was her David and triumphed for her. 
See, that's why Christ was born, that there is this battle that we cannot win, that we cannot do on our own, and that he brings us this victory in him. And the scriptures are all over the place like that. Think about Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed with fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has name written king of kings and lord of lords and that victory was won at Calvary it says in Colossians 3, it says the 2, 13 to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. It is decisive. And it is final. Once for all. Christ's victory on the cross. And so we live in this time of Christ's victory over all of his enemies. And we don't have time today to go through it. But look over at this idea of in Revelation 19 that he has victory over. It says the great prostitute and victory over uh, the beast and the false prophets uh, in Revelation 19. In Revelation 20 it says he has victory over Satan and the dragon himself and that there is this victory secured for us. But as we said last week and introduced this idea and this concept, it is a victory that is once for all and it is decisive and it's final. But we're living in that tension of the already and the not yet. He has already secured the victory. But he hasn't come and finished all the work in that he's eventually going to come and clean up the field. Satan will be gone. No more to bark at you. No more to growl. No more to threaten you. No more to assault God's people. But he says, one day I'm going to come back. And we live in that tension. Do you guys feel that tension sometimes? It, it helps you to understand it. Why am I in this tension? Because of the already. His kingdom has come, but his kingdom will come one day fully. And so we live in that tension. So what do we do in the meantime? What are the benefits to us? Well, the benefits to us are several. One, it's salvation. We spoke about that already. You are freed from your sins. Two is shalom. The bringing back together of all things, the flourishing. Shalom doesn't just mean peace, it means flourishing. And so where there is the victory of God in your life, there should be a flourishing. Instead of a disintegration, you should see things becoming integrated in your own heart, in your emotions, in your thoughts, in your relationships, in your families, in your communities. Where Christians are and where the church has influence, we should see things coming together. I was talking to some friends who are from Baltimore, and there's a place in Baltimore called Sandtown. And these two uh, PCA pastors, doesn't matter what denomination, but these two pastors, uh, two white guys, one was in a wheelchair and one wasn't, but both small of, of stature, with their wives and little kids, decided we want to go see if this will really work. 
And they went and they picked the toughest neighborhood in one of the toughest areas of the entire United States a number of years ago, Sandtown, Baltimore. And they went in and they said, we want to plant a church here and see whether or not the kingdom of God can do something. And you know what's happened over the course of time there? There's a waiting list for people to move into that neighborhood. Because lives were transformed. Businesses were transformed. Housing was transformed. And it was done through the power of the gospel living there. Because you see where salvation comes and freedom comes and victory comes, there comes shalom and peace. If you're not experiencing that in your life, your prayer should be, Lord, be my peace. Lord, there's something that's keeping me from this. What is it in that way? That we have this salvation, we have shalom. Revelation 19, it says that we are invited to the feast of the marriage of the Lamb. Which, by the way, I think is going to be pretty awesome. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I'm looking forward. We had a great meal at our home last night with my family. Lisa's folks are coming in today, and we're going to have another great meal with them. And then we'll probably eat another big meal on tomorrow and probably another one on Tuesday. And you know why imagery of food and meals is so powerful to us? It's not just sensory. It touches into something deep that basically says this. One day, you're going to get invited to another meal. And Christ is going to be at the head. And there's going to be streams of life flowing by the river of life. And there will be the tree of life bearing its fruit in its season. And all of the saints will be gathered around. And some of you think, oh, what a boring picture and image. But he says it's going to be the greatest feast of all feasts. For it is the wedding feast of the Lamb. I've gone to some pretty fun wedding feasts. This one trumps them all. He says that's what you gain from it. And you also gain this. And we're going to end with this. You gain the privilege of fighting with Christ. Now that may seem odd and foreign to you. But part of us, a part of what we gain in Christ is the opportunity to go out on the field of battle with him and fight the principalities and the powers and the evil forces that are in this world. You've been given that privilege, but most of us have become pacifists. We are conscientious objectors to anything like that, and we stand on the sidelines. And I wonder if they could have thoughts like this. What would the martyrs who are all around the throne of God think of the church today, especially the church in America today that sits on the sidelines and sits in the suburbs, and we sit in our gated communities, and we sit and we look back and we go, I just, I don't know. We'll we'll let them fight that one. We're going to sit this one out. Because you know what is one of the constant things of battle. It's messy and it's bloody and people will get wounded. And let me tell you something. I don't want to spin it wrongly. Fighting for the cause of Christ may cost you your life. But Paul said, what's that? I count them all as nothing. The afflictions of this world are nothing in comparison to the greatness of what I gain in Christ Jesus, my Lord. For all the martyrs are around saying, how long, Lord? And they're basically saying to us, get in the fight. Parents, don't stand by and let society raise your children. Fight for their hearts. Battle for them. Be different from a world around that doesn't know the Savior. Raise them in that way. 
Grandparents, engage their hearts. Husbands, engage your wives' hearts differently. Wives, engage your husbands' hearts differently. Friends, fight battles for your friends' hearts. Fight for them. Engage it, but always knowing that as you enter into the battle, guess who enters into the battle with you? One who's riding on a white horse. Whose name is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In that way. And then at the end of the day, you know our ultimate response to it all? We worship. We worship him. Listen to this. Our ultimate response to Christ's victory is we worship him. We'll end with this passage of scripture and then we're going to sing that great old song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Because if there's something really good, we need to go tell people about it, right? If you find a good buffet and it's at a really cheap price, guess what your normal response is? Hey, there's a great buffet. Someone came up to me this morning and gave me a little coupon book and said, hey, this is awesome. You can go with this coupon book. You can buy a meal. And guess what? Your wife gets one for free. I was like, sweet. And I'll tell you all about it afterwards. But uh, it's that. We get to go tell about this great victory that we have in Christ. We get to go tell the world that they don't have to stay in darkness. We get to tell the world that they don't have to be afraid of death. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Alleluia. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Hallelujah. Praise be to our God. Would we be a church that worships well? Because a church that worships well. Well, and why that, I don't mean we have to have all the worldly lights and all the perfections of all of the stuff up here. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to do that. And and the PowerPoint's going to mess up from time to time. But we're going to worship well because we are going to raise one voice to a king who is victorious on our behalf. And we're going to go, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father, thank you for our victor Christ. For when we consider this world, it's too much for us. We just want to sit on the sidelines. We just want to try to find the best way to get our ticket to heaven and then blend in and bring no attention to ourselves. But God, you have called us out. You have invited us out into a field of battle and of victory. And you are screaming to our hearts, I have overcome him. I am greater than the world. I will be with you forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then you say to us, go. Go tell it to the world. Go tell it on a mountain. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.